FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Well, we start Political Rewind on what I suspect is a very happy day for people across the state. The Atlanta Braves, 6-2 to two victors in the first game of the World Series in Houston against the Astros. Um, probably no one happier about that than uh, my Wednesday partner on this show, Greg Bluestein, a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg Bluestein, you... You and your daughters went to uh, you went to a lot of Braves games this season, so uh, you're really cheering them on. Uh, we really are, and the kids got to stay up late last night again. We'll be up late tonight, and I'll be going to the game Friday, but I'm not taking my daughters to that one. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, thank you for being here after a late night last night. I appreciate it. Once again today, we have a terrific panelist, powerhouse political science a panel, which includes Professor Audrey Haynes, Professor of Political Science at the University of Georgia, and the Director of the Applied Politics Program, which uh, encourages and works for students to pursue political careers, get them a foot in the door to do just that. Audrey, thank you so much for being here. So wonderful to be here, Bill. Alan Abramowitz is back with us. He is now Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Emory University. Uh, Alan, I, I never quite understood what that title meant until you told me. It, it basically means I'm kind of retired, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. It, may, it means you're old. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, not too old to be thinking smartly about politics today. And we're joined by Kurt Young, who is the uh, department head of, of the political science department, the chair at Clark Atlanta University, and also teaches uh, political science as well. How are you, Kurt? I'm doing great, Bill. Good morning to everyone, and and uh, congratulations to my friend Alan. Uh, that's that's a noble uh, accomplishment to become emeritus. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Except he is teaching. You're going to teach. You're going to teach a course in both the spring and the fall on the 2022 elections, and I think well, that would be in the cool. spring. Isn't that in right? The spring, yeah. Well, I know, definitely oh. in the spring. Uh, um, yeah, on the on the midterm election, right? I think it'd be great to come watch you teach that class. All right, let's get right to the news. You know, Greg, uh, people who do this show, people who come on the show regularly know that every day I send out a list, an email with topics that I think we should explore on the day's, next day's show so people aren't blindsided. And, and the fact of the matter is that on about a third of the following days, I tear that list up because so much has happened since I sent it out. Today is an example of that. You just reported a few minutes ago about a big story concerning Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker. What ha what's happened? Yeah, this is a big deal for Herschel Walker's campaign. Um, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell endorsed him this morning, uh, which is a big sign that the Washington Republican establishment is lining up behind Herschel Walker's candidacy. You know, still in Georgia, uh, there are some big names backing Gary Black, but clearly the momentum is starting to continuing to shift in Herschel Walker's way with, with Mitch McConnell's support. He's the sixth U.S. Senator um, to back Herschel Walker, and 
this is a big one because it was McConnell's aides who have been expressing some of the most skepticism, skepticism and concern about Herschel Walker's candidacy, worried that he'll be a weak, uh, weak challenger to Raphael Warnock next year. Um, clearly, their minds have been changed by now. Yeah, John Thune endorsed Walker just yesterday, uh, second-ranking Republican in the U.S. Senate. Alan, I ask, have asked in the, in the past few weeks every Republican who's come on this show whether they believe Herschel Walker is a prohibitive favorite to win the Republican nomination, and they, they've equivocated. I get that. They don't really want to commit too early, but I think this McConnell endorsement really means this is a done deal. Yes. Yes. Uh, I would have said that he was a prohibitive favorite to win the Republican nomination even before this endorsement. It's just an an indication that we're seeing a very early consolidation uh, of Republican uh, uh, leaders uh, in in, uh, Washington, if not here in Georgia yet, um, behind Herschel Walker. I mean, with, with Trump's endorsement, um, with now this other supporting with with the you know, his ability to actually raise a decent amount of money um, since he uh, entered the race. I, I think all of those things factor factor into this. And, um, you know, unless he really stumbles badly or something unexpected happens in the next few months, I think I think he has to be considered a very strong favorite to win the Republican nomination. And, and I would add that I think that's what, um, you know, the powers that be have come to assess. They think he's a winner now. They think they've been looking at the numbers, but more than anything else, they're looking at some of the ratings for the U.S. Senate election in 22. If you look at the Cook Report, if you look at Crystal Ball, they all have us as in Georgia, lean Democrat, battleground Democrat, lean Democrat. This is a serious race, and they want to get in early. They want to get the the, the wagons around Herschel so that they, Mm -hmm. because they know that Warnock is a formidable candidate. But I will also tell you, they have some very professional people on their team. They've recruited and they have people who are working for them. And, you know, the, the, the thing that is probably the area that Herschel, aside from lacking experience in that genre, but, you know, that doesn't seem to matter anymore, were there questions about some of his behavior and some of the violent behavior that goes along with them. But they, they think that they have found an effective way to mitigate that challenge. And that's really what they think is the only thing standing in their way. They're bringing in lots of money and not just money from in the state. But I would also venture that there are probably some Republicans in the state that view uh, people in the elite circles that view Herschel as somewhat of an outsider. And this is making them think about, you know, their position in the state, uh, the Republican Party, and, you know, how it is changing and who's, what they're going to do about it. I, I think that behind the scenes, a lot of them are going, you know, is this what we really want for our state? Mm-hmm. Um, but national politics are really playing a role in this. Right. I, 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 I really agree with that point regarding, um, um, you know, this notion of the, the, the questions that may be uh, swirling around uh, the Walker campaign behind the scenes. But think about it this way, Bill. Um, if Raphael Warnock was not in this race, this would really be a checkmate move for the Republican Party because they're able to, of course, would take the politics aside, they'll be able to support someone who is aligned with the party. Um, they're able to support someone who is of African-American descent in a state that where the African-American uh, uh, constituency is mobilized. But what you have with Warnock is a superstar. 
he's a star in the, in, 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 the, in the Democratic Party in particular, but also statewide. And so given the fact that you have Warnock on the ticket and given the inroads that Warnock was able to establish in the previous uh, um, um, term, what you're expecting from a Walker campaign is someone who's going to be able to offset that. And I don't necessarily see that that's a possibility uh, right now. Anything is possible. I'm not sure if that's a probability right now. Um, and the last thing I will add to that, and it kind of gets to something that Audrey was saying a moment ago, um, and we discussed it earlier. For the younger voters, I think at some point we may discuss something about the age differences in the electorate right now. Among younger voters, many of them may not remember Herschel Walker, the superstar. Many of them may be coming to Atlanta politics, I'm sorry, Georgia politics, and coming to uh, electoral politics in general at a kind of post-Herschel uh, period. Now, I'm an old football player from the state of Florida, so I remember Herschel Walker very well. But you know, younger voters may not remember uh, those aspects, and, and, and Audrey is right. They may know more about some of the uh, uh, unfavorable and unsavory aspects of his um, 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 reputation, if you will, uh, than they know about his star power. And the professor is exactly right, and that, and that speaks to Herschel Walker's opening strategy here, because he has such name recognition. Even if young people don't remember his playing days, like me, I wasn't, you know, I was just a kid. I was just a baby when he was still playing football. But even if folks like me don't remember his playing days, they know his name. And right now, he feels like he's so strong in the Republican primary that he can look past the GOP electorate and start speaking to a broader base of voters. And that's why that helps explain it, at least. I'm not saying it's a strategy I like as a reporter because I want him to take stances on issues. I want to be able to, to ask him nuanced policy questions. But that helps explain that strategy of avoiding taking issues, uh, stances on immigration, on abortion, on some of the hot-button issues that you usually see motivate a Republican base and instead have sort of broader-based talk about trying to please Democrats and Republicans about how we should talk with each other. These platitudes that really don't mean much to anyone mm-hmm. is, is what he's focusing on, and a lot of strategists say smartly focusing on because he's, he's able to look past the primary and look towards a general election with Raphael Warnock. Alan? I, I think what we're looking at here is um, a general election campaign in which, uh, once again, we're going to see a lot of national attention focused on the state of Georgia. Um, uh, we're going to have a very competitive uh, contest, and that w- would have been the case regardless of who the Republican nominee is. Georgia is going to be one of about a half dozen um, states in which control of the U.S. Senate will be decided in 2022. Um, we're going to see a huge amount of money coming in on both sides. Um, and, uh, of course, we're also going to be having an election for governor and all the other statewide offices at the same time. So uh, needless to say, this is going to be a very, very intense election. I think it's going to be a high turnout election for a midterm. And um, those national issues are going to be prominent. And, and, and a lot will depend on the national political climate a year from now. Uh, and where Joe Biden is, for example, uh, and what happens, you know, now with the uh, rec- with the reconciliation package and how that plays out over the next year, and what happens to the economy over the next year, and all these things are going to shape um, the midterm election across the country and here in Georgia. Audrey, there are risks to a Republican strategy which elevates Herschel Walker as the Republican candidate to face Raphael Warnock. And let me uh, ask you about that and and explain what I mean. Excuse me. Um, 
yes, as Greg Bluestein points out, he's avoiding hot-button issues. He's not talking about abortion. He's really not talking much about the border. He's not calling the Georgia election fraudulent as Donald Trump does, and he's not talking about Donald Trump. All of that intended to make him more palatable to those voters in uh, 2018, uh, 2020, uh, who swing swung over to Democratic uh, 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 candidates, including uh, President Biden. A lot of those were women. So, Audrey, the risk is Democrats are going to be pounding the, the through the records to look to see the about the alleged abusive treatment of Walker uh, toward women in his life, um, his mental health. Issues, of course, he's talked about very openly, and maybe in some ways you can uh, take that off the table because he's been so willing to talk about it. But there are things in his background that um, women voters particularly might be very concerned about. Right. And, you know, this is what their uh, communications messaging strategy, they've already pretty much started developing plans to, as I said earlier, mitigate some of those. And, you know, falling in line with national politics, they're going to invoke things like, you know, this is just cancel culture. What's, you know, why are you attacking, you know, this man, a black man running in the Republican Party about these things? You know, they're going to try and spin it, turn it around. So it looks like Democrats are being uh, hypocritical or prejudiced or, you know, and, and, and that might actually work for them. And then they're going to, you know, spin it around and say, why are you attacking him? He, he's someone who wants to work in a bipartisan way and help people. Um, you know, so they do have those strategies. And then you have to have the assumption that, you know, people are actually paying attention to those. One thing I tell students all the time is if you look at the percentage of people who are really paying attention to politics and getting into the nitty gritty, it's like a very small percentage of people. People um, are hearing most of the time what they want to hear. And, you know, with a polarized media consumption, People who watch Fox News or OAN are not going to hear any of those things about Herschel Walker. They're going to see him in very soft, um, supportive interviews where Herschel can say something like, oh, I want what other Democrats want and doesn't even get a lot of pushback about that. Maybe just a little from people like Gary Black right now. Um, but I think it's going to be a lot easier than than people think. Or maybe I should phrase it. It's going to be harder um, to uh, go negative and critical on Herschel Walker in that, and they will, and they, they may find some things that work, but the campaign's already anticipating that. It is going to be a very interesting messaging campaign, in my view. Uh, so, Kurt, Audrey has already uh, pointed out what a strong uh, uh, candidate Raphael Warnock makes. He's had a very, he's, he's had, started off his career in the Senate very, in, in, in very good ways. I mean, he's risen to uh, uh, the top in a number of areas where he's concerned. Voting rights, for instance. He's now working with Ossoff on uh, expanding Medicaid uh, in, the, uh, in, in the president's uh, big uh, uh, social uh, policy agenda. He's, and he's raised so much money. He's just become one of the star fundraisers of the Democratic mm -hmm. Party. Um, the question is... Is there any – to have two African-Americans in that race, uh, is, is there – what do you think about the possibility that some African-American voters might in fact think, wow, Herschel Walker, an enormous football star, 
um, a man who I've had admiration for my entire life. How, how might that change the equation for African Americans, if at all? Well, let's say in normal circumstances, and I'm not sure there's ever such thing as a normal election, right? <laughs> but we're in different we're in different uh, waters right now. So let's let's go with it. In normal circumstances, I think that that case could be made, or there's a possibility that that can happen. And I would also say though that the the decision of star athletes to run uh, in elections is uh, that that's not new, right? Um, and and so uh, it's not a phenomenon that we hadn't seen before. And we can look at those previous elections and see to, to, to peel away some uh, ideas about what can happen in this case. But there's something different now. What the Democratic Party in general, and particularly African American voters who may, let's say, be undecided in the normal circumstance, what they are going to be engaged in now is going to be an opportunity to connect Herschel Walker, red, black, white, or whatever, to the Republican Party's current trajectory and to Donald Trump, who is still actively involved in um, Republican politics right now. Uh, as, as, as long as Donald Trump is still an active figure in, this, uh, um, in the American uh, body politic, you will find a Democratic Party being able to uh, well, attempt to uh, connect Herschel Walker, with that, notwithstanding anything Herschel says or doesn't say, as uh, Greg is pointing out, um, he is going to be connected to the general direction of American politics, as Audrey has mentioned, mentioned in a moment ago. And I think, Bill, when that happens, those African Americans who were mobilized in the previous uh, cycle, in the, 2000, uh, um, the, the um, uh, 2020 cycle, and those who were mobilized prior to that in the 2016 period, you know, we shouldn't forget about that trajectory, right? Uh, they will have stepped right into a process that's already unfolding that will neutralize any kind of uh, a split in the Af potential split in the African American uh, um, um, vote right now. Uh, so it's possible, but I don't think Herschel Walker uh, is the type of candidate who can pull that off. Someone who would be closer to Warnock would be the one who can pull something like that off. Greg, I know you want to jump in, and then Alan. Yeah, what Democrats will be worried about next year at this time is is Herschel Walker's ability to peel off some African-American male voters, men voters. Um, in 2014, Nathan Deal reached about double digits with black men. Johnny Isaacson in 2016 um, did. And last year, you saw Donald Trump make a direct appeal to African-American men here in Georgia with some events. He didn't quite reach that, that threshold. Um, but black women are the cornerstone of the Democratic electorate in Georgia, as we all know. But it's it's it's. Republicans hope if they can get 12 percent, 10 percent of black men, that could be just enough to undercut um, Raphael Warnock. So we'll we'll see how that goes. But this is what I, the Democrats I talk to right now are fretting. Yeah, I'm skeptical that he's going to be able to do that. I mean, I think that um, in all life, especially running against Warnock, that um, we're going to see Herschel Walker get. Um, the normal kind of Republican share of the vote among African American voters, which which is overall maybe, maybe seven or eight uh, percent, if that, among, among African American voters uh, across the board. Um, the, the question is going to be the turnout, and and I think that uh, Democrats are going to be working very very hard here in Georgia and across the country, but especially here in Georgia, where the African American vote is so crucial. Um, to get that turnout up. And obviously, if we have Stacey Abrams at the top of the ticket for the Democrats, that's also going to be a factor. And um, she will mobilize a lot of African-American and other Democratic voters uh, as a nominee for governor. So we're going to have uh, hot 
in all likelihood, a very hot contest for governor, uh, as well as this Senate election going on next year, uh, right here. One last question before we move on to another topic, and actually before we take our first break, Greg. Um, with with McConnell, Thune, other leaders of the Republican Party stepping up for Herschel Walker right now, what does this do for people like Nathan Deal, who early on endorsed Gary Black? Um, what does it do for Brian Kemp as he runs his campaign? To what extent can he keep himself separate from the momentum moving toward uh, Herschel Walker, or does he embrace it uh, and, and therefore alienate candidates uh, like a Gary Black? How is this going to play out in the, next, in the weeks and months ahead? Yeah, that's a great question because, mm-hmm. you know, Nathan Deal, Doug Collins, um, Bob McDonald, you saw uh, uh, Andrew Clyde, a lot of North Georgia Republicans early on backed um, Gary Black as a sign of, and that's a very important constituency for Republicans, especially in the primary. Uh, races are won and lost in North Georgia because of the huge trove of conservative votes up there. Um, I don't think that changes their calculus at all, but I also, uh, you know, would be curious to see their effect in these races because a lot of those same candidates, these same politicians backed Doug Collins to no avail last year. When it comes to Brian Kemp, it's going to be very interesting because we'll see how much Herschel Walker even wants Brian Kemp's support, given his yep. tortured relationship with Donald Trump. Well, that's right. That's that's going to be fascinating. Rush. All right, let's do this. So let's get our first break of the show out of the way and uh, then start on the agenda that I had suggested to all of you when I sent out my note we wanted to look at. We'll do all that and more in a few minutes. Back with Professor Kurt Young, Professor Audrey Haynes, Professor Emeritus Ellen Abramowitz, and the AJC's Greg Bluestein on today's Political Rewind. Um, Greg, of course, next week in Georgia, next Tuesday, uh, the elections that we'll all be keeping track of are mostly local municipal affairs around the state, some races for mayor, commissioners, uh, city council members, some uh, referendum or tax issues on ballots. But in Virginia, there is a huge race that uh, is being watched carefully by Democrats and Republicans across the country, including here in Georgia. And it's worth talking about on this show because of how it could, could set the stage for what to expect in elections in Georgia next year. Let me just read the first couple of graphs of a New York Times piece on that contest. In a contest deemed a bellwether for the 2022 midterms, the battle between Terry McAuliffe, a Democrat and the state's former governor, and Glenn Youngkin, a Republican, has ignited more over the cultural issues currently inflaming national politics than traditional tension points like state and local taxes. Atop the list of the most aired ads in the race are attacks about abortion, and schools amid the national debate on curriculum, critical race theory, and masks. Other national dividing issues, such as voting rights, police reform, and public health, play central roles in the McAuliffe campaign's effort to paint Youngkin with the patina of a Trump Republican. Um, In the other side of it, the Youngkin campaign trying to tie him to uh, Joe Biden and the uh, troubles that Joe Biden is having right now. So... This race is going to tell us a lot about where voters stand at this point in 2021 and where they may be moving into the election year, Greg. 
Yeah, basically it's saying that the Virginia governor's race is nationalized and, and that local issues matter less. And frankly, we saw that in the last, not just one, but two election cycles in Georgia, where Democrats used to try to run away from the national brand, and they embraced it, particularly in the Senate races um, last year, uh, whereas Republicans have, have never been too reluctant to br embrace that national brand. And I think we'll see the same thing in Georgia next year, but this is seen as a bellwether. And there's a reason why Stacey Abrams and Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms have both gone up to Virginia to stump for the Democrat uh, Terry McAuliffe um, to, to, to promote his, his return to the governor's mansion, because uh, this is going to be seen as a, as a dividing line. And if Democrats hold on and win that seat, you can expect more investment, more, more optimism about Georgia next year. And if not, there'll be all sorts of hand-wringing and, and worries and doomsday scenarios for, 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 for Democrats, because Virginia has tilted so solidly blue. I mean, we get the question all the time, is Georgia becoming more like Florida or more like Virginia in terms of, is it more of a seesaw battle like Florida and North Carolina, or is it solidly blue like, like Virginia? Well, we'll see if we can still say that Virginia is solidly blue in a few, in a few days. Right. Yeah, traditionally, the uh, when the, the party the party that holds uh, holds the White House uh, that wins the presidency loses the uh, off year election in Virginia. Um, uh, so if you go by that, the fact that you have a Democrat in the White House would be a good sign for Republicans in, in Virginia. The energy is usually more uh, with, with the out party in in that off year uh, election. Now in twenty thirteen. Uh, McAuliffe uh, was able to uh, go get, uh, succeeded despite the fact that you had uh, Barack Obama in, in, in the White House, and, and he did he did uh, win <laughs> win that election. So uh, the, and the state certainly has been trending Democratic. Um, Biden carried Virginia by about 10 percentage points in uh, in, in the 2020 election, um, but the polls show that this is a neck and neck race. Just about every poll in the state uh, in, in the last couple of weeks has shown that race within a couple of points. Uh, usually with McCall slightly ahead, but I think we'd have to, you'd have to just say that uh, it's, it's really a toss-up right now. It's going to come down to turnout if the, if the Democrats can get the, the African-American vote out, to, just as here in Georgia, the African-American vote is uh, not as large, but still very crucial in Virginia. African-American voters turn out in good numbers, and if they can get there, support is out in Northern Virginia, which has turned into a real Democratic stronghold, uh, the, the suburbs of D.C., um, you know, then I think Democrats would have a good chance to hold on to that seat. But um, right now it is very much a toss-up election. Yeah, the polling that I've seen suggests that it is Youngkin who is moving. Uh, he's been behind by four or five more points at certain points in the race, but th that's closing uh, uh, dramatically as we come to the final days before the election. Audrey, we've seen fights about education here in Georgia between Republicans and Democrats, obviously, over everything from mask mandates to the teaching of so-called critical race theory, uh, and whether parents should have more control of how their children are taught in schools. And that's a huge national issue now, and it's certainly playing out in the Virginia governor's race. Um, so McAuliffe is being hit by Youngkin for at one point uh, having made the comment, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. 
So it, it, as that debate plays out, it will also tell us something about how Republicans and Democrats here will deal with that issue in the election cycle in Georgia next year. Well, you read my mind. I, you know, that was exactly what I was going to raise. That, you know, one of the things about McAuliffe is, you know, the, that, the comment and the way he phrased it and, you know, the intensity behind the words uh, when uh, he was caught on, on camera saying that really matches uh, and coincides with Youngkin taking that information and using it in his campaigns. Boy, they spun some, they spun some material out for their messaging very quickly, and you saw an increase um, in, in, in polling for that because it resonated with people. You know, it goes along with, uh, correlates with, you know, vaccine mandates, mask mandates. We're not going to listen to parents. They don't tell us what to teach. And, you know, again, that was uh, that was something that played very well for the people that Youngkin were trying to was trying to mobilize. And, you know, he's not Trump um, and, you know, he may but he's been playing it, uh, you know, a little bit safe. I'm a little bit safer. Right. But he got that issue. And, and I think that helped him turn the tide. And McAuliffe has never been a, a great, you know, face to face kind of candidate. He's always been someone who's done much better behind the scenes and he's been around for yeah, ages. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you short. Yeah, he's also been a prolific fundraiser for Democrats, for himself, for uh, Bill Clinton, and uh, for others. That's that's his real strength in the Democratic Party in many ways. Kurt, to expand on this education question, a Fox News poll from early this month found that a strong majority of Virginia parents said they should tell schools what to teach their children. And they were thinking about high-profile controversies over transgender policies, critical race theory, and masks, uh, for example. Um, and I think a lot of people were surprised that education rose to that level of, uh, of interest and of importance to that governor's race. Well, you, you said it earlier, or at least you, you, you read some of it earlier. Uh, yes, indeed, this is a race that's concerned with uh, uh, typical Republican and Democratic-related uh, uh, items. Um, but it's also a, a race that's going to be driven by culture, by culture issues, right? And um, um, there's a conversation right now in the American uh, body politic around these, these basic issues, right? What should be the role of education in preparing a young, younger generation for uh, to deal with a, a range of issues that's been vexing in the American uh, system for quite some time? How will you, how will young people be uh, uh, engaged in those types of issues? And uh, as we've already discussed, as it relates to uh, uh, critical race theory, I mean, it's not really about the elements of critical race theory. This is really frustrating. Uh, it's, it's really not. It's the extent to which race is connected to the, uh, a, a major force in the, in the American electorate. It's always been there, but it's being mobilized in a way now that's consistent with the intensity uh, 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 in American elections right now. All right, and the same thing would extend to uh, uh, education in many other ways, right? The extent to which uh, local uh, communities uh, should have a certain level of control and power in establishing what should be taught in the schools, or should there be some national uh, uh, um, um, force that dictates uh, what's taught? And so, all of those issues that's been ingrained in American politics for many, many years, and it certainly is cornerstones of American society, are now amplified in ways that uh, distort what's really at hand here, right? So what we're seeing here is what happens when culture issues that are not, never been really discussed in American society 
become politicized in the way that they become weaponized. And I think this is what's happening now. Greg, in some ways, the biggest factor that we, we will watch in terms of what happens next year is the two men who are the acknowledged national leaders of their party. Uh, neither Youngkin nor McAuliffe have wanted to have too much involvement with Donald Trump on the Republican side, President Biden, whose approval numbers have dropped precipitously. McAuliffe, he did campaign with McAuliffe uh, yesterday, but they've tried to keep Biden kind of at arm's length. And Youngkin has really done the same thing with Trump. And the Youngkin people, according to news reports, were really upset when Trump called in to a Youngkin rally uh, to endorse him, but at the same time to once again uh, complain about fraudulent elections, which denied him the White House. So watching that dynamic um, and how yeah. those two leaders have an influence on candidates is going to be really important. And even Biden's visit, uh, his, his rally for, for McAuliffe was more about Trump was read as more about Trump than about Biden. And look, I think this is a window into next year, too. Um, Republicans have already made the case that they're going to make the race about Biden and Abrams, regardless of whether Abrams is on the ballot. It's going to be all about Biden's policies. It's going to be all about Abrams and, and who's been vilified by, by the right um, for, 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 for years now. And Republicans, um, sorry, Democrats will do the same thing with the Republicans. They will make the race about Trump about Trump-like policies and Trump, 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 because he has been uniquely polarizing to the Democratic electorate. All right. Well, so we're going to watch very carefully what happens next Tuesday in Virginia. But as we always try to do, uh, show why it may have some impact on the elections in our state um, of Georgia. Um, as long as we're talking about uh, Virginia for a minute, Alan, you know, 538 uh, accumulated a variety of polls uh, just the other day, all of which showed that with reapportionment redistricting taking place in, I think, 19 states are dealing with redistricting right now, Georgia starts its process next week, that a majority of Americans in all of the polling that 538 uh, accumulated do not trust that these processes are done Fairly Now, that's not a surprise. We know that the parties in power draw lines to favor their own uh, party's candidates. But mm -hmm. it is, I think, fair to say it's troubling that one of the most important processes in our democracy, uh, deciding how people, where people get to vote and the candidates they have an opportunity to vote for, uh, that there's no faith in that system is, is, is disturbing. Well, it is, um, and voters are fully justified in uh, in being very suspicious uh, about the motivations uh, of those who are drawing the lines, because this has always been a very political and a very partisan process, and the uh, majority party um, in in the at the state level has has traditionally you know used this as an opportunity to consolidate its power. Uh, and whether that is to protect incumbents or whether that is to try to maximize their seats or some combination of those two. And, and uh, you know, I'm certain that that's, that's what we're going to see uh, going on here in the context of big demographic shifts that we're seeing in the state of Georgia that are going to complicate that, that process. The question is, uh, uh, though, though voters may feel 
that uh, the process is fundamentally flawed, do they really care about that? Uh, and is that something that's going to influence ultimately the way they uh, the way they vote? And I, and I think the answer there is probably not. Um, that I think to some extent redistricting is a sort of inside baseball kind of issue, uh, where you know voters have this general idea that it's unfair, um, but they don't really pay that much attention to it. Uh, they don't really vote. Uh, on that issue, they're stuck, you know, being put in the districts that they're put in, um, uh, w which don't always make sense. They they often don't coincide with, um, you know, political divisions. Uh, uh, often, you know, uh, cities and towns are split up. Many can counties are split up many ways uh, by the map makers, uh, and and that that kind of uh, makes for somewhat of a disconnect between voters and their representatives. People don't know who represents them because the you know representatives represent these unnatural districts. But anyway, is it a voting issue for voters? I don't think so. Audrey, I want to bring you in, but let me add a piece of information here. The reason I, I said let's talk about this as we were talking about Virginia is that Virginia is one of the states that made an effort to take the redistricting process out of the hands of the state legislature and turn it over to an independent commission. An equal number of Democrats and Republicans uh, in, in, in the legislature brought together in the commission, and then a number of citizens also brought in. Presumably, they were going to be able to work without partisan bias, and the entire process completely melted down. Uh, so the notion of independent commissions isn't necessarily an answer either, Audrey. Well, and that is true. And in this country, we only have eight states who actually um, engage in uh, independent commissions for congressional redistricting. But I was going to mention more in the messaging. The other day, I think it was last week, Rebecca DeHart, who is the um, CEO of Fair Count, was in our class. And she was talking about the work that Fair Count does. And part of what they're doing is trying to get people to understand that redistricting is not just this political, um, you know, uh, hocus pocus that happens. It has really deep and critical effects to things that matter to them, like whether their hospital is funded, you know, whether they have the representation as a community that represents their interests as opposed to being cracked or packed or, you know, utilized for sole partisan advantage. And in fact, they are a nonpartisan entity. You know, I'm sure that there are always leanings we know with anyone who calls themselves nonpartisan, but they're trying to focus it in a different way so that, as Alan said, that people actually care about it and become educated about the bottom line impact of redistricting. And it has real effects. It always has. Uh, Kurt, get a last word in before we have to get our break. Yeah, I'll be very, very quick. Um, Audrey is right. This is a critical issue. And, and, and I think there's something that can happen or that may be happening. In many ways, what we're seeing here uh, is the ghost of, of Shelby versus Holder. Right? To the extent that what we're seeing is an issue becoming more and more, gaining more and more traction because of the ability to connect it to something that's really happening right now. There's a very clear image in the country of a party running roughshod over voting rights. Now, this, that we know, all know that it's much more complex than we are discussing it now. But the image of states throughout the country rolling back hard-fought gains uh, associated with voting rights, 
that's an easy message. And the extent to which that then is connected to the issues that Audrey just laid out and, and that uh, Alan also pinpointed uh, makes for a very powerful political issue. Now, whether or not that would be a single issue, uh, a factor that would um, compel people to vote one way or the other, that's yet to be seen. But I can see it becoming a, a very serious political um, um, issue during this election. I got to get to a break. Before I do, I always feel compelled when we talk redistricting to point out that both parties use the process to their best advantage. If you look at Illinois, dominated by a Democratic uh, Assembly, has got one map that has a district, congressional district drawn that stretches from Rockford up at the northern uh, border of the state all the way down almost to where St. Louis uh, crosses uh, in, in the, the nexus of St. Louis with mm-hmm. Illinois. It's like a 265-mile district uh, drawn for a Democrat. So both both parties are playing the uh, gerrymandering game. We'll be back with more in a moment. Greg Bluestein, uh, an increasing number of Republicans are either voicing publicly or, as we know, talking quietly among themselves about how much they wish that Donald Trump would stop talking about the 2020 mm-hmm. election and the fact that he was robbed of victory and instead start focusing on 2022. And, and what has happened, of course, is that in, sta- in many states, uh, the people who are riding on Trump's back toward what they hope is victory are doing the same thing. The latest example of that here in Georgia, where every lawsuit claiming a fraudulent election has basically been thrown out, comes with a, uh, a effort by um, David Schaefer, the chair of the state Republican Party, and True the Vote, an organization out of Texas, uh, to uh, use GPS information from cell phones, which they have analyzed, to prove there was massive vote harvesting in 2020. And GBI looked at the data and threw it out and said, there's nothing, we don't have anything here that we can do much with. And yet, um, Schaefer continues to complain that they're ignoring an important issue. Yeah, I'll be honest, this was a, this is one of the conspiracy theories I had never heard of, really. I, I heard <laughs> of a lot of them. But when I got hold of this letter last week, this was a new one. I had to I had to rely on my colleague, Mark Nisi, who had heard of it, because he's, he's more in tune with all these conspiracy theories sometimes than I am. Um, but yeah, this was kind of a, a bizarre theory that basically pings from your cell phone um, that automatically come up to your cell phone um, have been, you know, you people can buy those pings. You know, commercial vendors can buy those pings, and apparently these pings showed uh, some 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 related overlap around ballot drop boxes, which could be anything. It could be. Uh, public employees who are going from library to library. It could be, you know, it could be all number of things. It could be poll workers. It could be all sorts of things. Um, but uh, the conspiracy theorists saw a plot here. The the director of the GBI, picked by Governor Brian Kemp, um, appointed by him in this role, said, "Hey, there's not enough evidence for us to open a criminal investigation. This would set a precedent using these pings to to to, to potentially go after innocent people and to investigate innocent people." Um, and it was seen as a, as a major blow in the latest in the long line of conspiracy mm-hmm. theories that were have been debunked by, and I should again point it out, debunked by, in many cases, Republican officials. 
You know, Audrey, it feels to me in some ways like the Republicans who jump on this bandwagon are doing it in spite their best instincts and understanding. Stop me from continuing to do this in my attempt to make sure that Donald Trump uh, is still, uh, I'm still on his good side. It seems really self-defeating in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I would tell you that um, you've got some serious things going on in the state in terms of politics and as the, um, you know, the person in charge of the state party. Uh, perhaps your time could be more well spent, uh, you know, building coalitions and, and raising money and doing those things as opposed to going down, again, this crazy conspiracy theory rabbit hole that time and time again has been proven to be, you know, unfruitful, right? I mean, you know, you have to wonder what is motivating um, Schaefer to do this. And I'm not sure I really understand the motivation, Um, you know, what what could possibly be self-interested there. Well, you you know, Bill. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Kurt. Oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but you, you know, Bill, you just made a mention made mention a moment ago about this frustration with with um, Donald Trump continually taking us back to the um, to the election that he lost. If if that is still a force in the Republican politics, and if it is also a fact that Donald Trump remains an active political figure in the Republican Party, and we add one more layer to it, as as Audrey mentioned uh, so eloquently a little while ago that we have a, an electorate right now that is informed based upon not nu- neutral access to media, uh, to information, they're informed based upon what speaks to what they already believe. If that's the reality that we're in, then what this, it, this, it may be a self-defeating uh, trend in the Republican Party, but what it may also mean is that they are speaking to a uh, fundamental reality that this is what's necessary to mobilize their electorate, their electorate, especially given what the demographics are showing. I've mentioned this before, that key aspects of the Republican um, 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 electorate is shrinking, are shrinking, right? And so they have to find ways to mobilize their voters in ways that perhaps defy logic. But when you look at it, and this is very dangerous, it's very dangerous and it's very scary, and I always ask the question, where do they think this is going? Where did, where, where, what's the outcome of this, uh, if this is indeed a tactical strategy? Uh, but I do think, I, at my point, and I say this reluctantly, that this is, can be a very effective tool, given the, the nature of the political landscape right now. Alan? Well, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And I think that, that, that's the dilemma that Republican candidates and elected officials have right now, uh, because if they, if they want to uh, appeal directly to Republican voters, um, then uh, they have to make sure that they don't do anything or say anything that could antagonize those Trump supporters and Trump loyalists who make up the large majority of the Republican electorate. And we know from the you know, public opinion polling that the overwhelming majority of Republican voters in Georgia and across the country um, still support Donald Trump, have a very favorable view of Donald Trump, uh, and uh, even more, uh, I think, tr- in a more troubling way, um, believe his claims of voter fraud. Uh, a majority, in fact, a substantial majority of Republican voters believe that, uh, Joe, that the Democrats and Joe Biden stole the 2020 election, that Donald Trump is the rightful president, uh, and, and would like to see him restored to the presidency. It's, it's very worrisome. Um, but that's, that's, where, that's where things are. Now, I think in the broader electorate, when we bring in the entire electorate, of course, those views are a distinct minority. 
Um, and that's a problem for, for Republicans and, and will ultimately, I think, become a problem for Republican candidates running uh, here in Georgia in 2022, uh, whether, whether it's, you know, the uh, statewide contest uh, uh, for, you know, governor and lieutenant governor and so on, or secretary of state, certainly, um, but also in the Senate uh, election. So at some point, I think Herschel Walker is going to have to answer those questions, uh, uh, whether it's in a debate with Raphael Warnock or in an interview or somewhere about what exactly does he believe happened in 2020? Um, and does he you know, agree with Donald Trump? Greg, we're running out of time, but we started with the World Series. We should end with it. Uh, people in Houston and Atlanta each have an opportunity to celebrate winning in one way or another when this series is over. But the one guy who has no victory ahead of him is Rob Manfred, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, the man who pulled the All-Star game out of Georgia after Senate Bill 202. But he is not only hated by many people in Georgia, the people of Houston are not very fond of him because of the way he handled the sign-stealing cheating scandal with the Astros a number of years ago. So I just think uh, we should take a moment to give some sympathy to Rob Manfred, <laughs> who's never going to win no matter what happens in the World Series, Greg. And, and they, and they yeah. have a labor, a labor dispute coming up, too. Exactly. You put it perfectly by saying that he was in a hellish situation. So I agree, <laughs> and he will not get a warm welcome in Georgia uh, on Friday. No, exactly, that's exactly right. We are out of time. Uh, for today's Political Rewind. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's another one of those days when I feel lucky to be able to sit here and hear the terrific analysis from all of you on the show today. Uh, so thank you, Kurt Young, Audrey Haynes, Alan Abramowitz, and of course mm -hmm. my Wednesday partner on the show, Greg Bluestein. Thank you to Jesse Neiswanger, producer Sam Burmas-Dawes, Sarah Callis, who has stepped in and is giving us so much help as we await the arrival, and we'll soon announce it, of our new senior producer on this show. We're back again with a new Political Rewind tomorrow. We're going to have public health experts in tomorrow because there's been a lot happening with vaccinations, booster shots, uh, young people getting vaccinated, and more. So we're going to answer as many of the questions that I know a lot of you have about where COVID stands and what we need to be doing to deal with it at this moment in time. That's tomorrow's show. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear your mask when you're around a lot of people. The virus is still out there. And tell the people who haven't gotten a COVID shot, now's a good time to do it. And whether they will or not, at least encourage them to get a flu shot. See you all tomorrow.